The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Catch a creative vibe on the Urban Cube with Sister Shamiza. Good morning and assalamu alaikum. It is 10 o'clock Monday, 18th of November and you're listening to me, Shamiza Rashid, taking it all the way up to 12 o'clock on the Urban Cube show. We're going live and direct to all our wonderful listeners across Luton surrounding areas this morning and as always and with great pleasure across to Salam Radio in uh, Peterborough and also Link FM in Sheffield. I hope you're well, guys. I hope you've had a fantastic weekend and an absolute great start to the week uh, inshallah. It's Monday it's the first day of the week and as always a great pleasure to be in your company sharing with you some great conversations with absolutely fantastic guests and those guests are speaking to me all the way from um, the north and the south this morning now you can catch the conversations live on uh, Facebook live as well do go onto the Inspire FM Facebook page and you can catch the conversation there. Leave any comments if you'd like to get, um, have some interaction with the show. Now, today's show is, as always, full of trailblazers making a difference in their world work um, spaces. Now, mashallah, today I'm joined by an international risk management consultant, mashallah, who will be um, talking to me about his journey in the world of business. And I'm absolutely excited to speak to him about one uh, amazing opportunity that he had as he held the post of a senior risk management consultant on the world-renowned Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca, mashallah. So looking forward to speaking to no other than Majid Varis um, about this. Now, also on the show this morning. I'm joined by another absolutely fantastic guest. It's a, it's a guest whose name you will be familiar with. He is Ahmed Najjar. Now he's a pal- Palestinian director, a playwright and Dabaka expert and he is going to be talking to me about his new play. I have two names which we'll be showcasing at the end of the week. So we'll be talking to him a, a little bit more about that later on. Now as always the show always welcomes your thoughts on any of the topics that we're discussing today. Now, we are going to be talking about business and industry and learning a little bit more about how you can improve your uh, your risk management in whatever field that you're working in with no other than Majid Varis. Now, he'll be joining me very, very shortly. Now, if you have any questions around um sales, coaching, business development, then this is the show for you. Now, the show will be repeated again at 8pm and you can join in with the conversation on 0777 9481822 this morning as well. So do WhatsApp us any um, questions that you have. Now, I came across a really intriguing article. Um, It's actually an old article and in this article it actually said something about Muslims care more about halal food than halal income. Now, this was by a Malaysian, this was said by a Malaysian minister. So my question to you guys this morning is, would you agree, do do you care more about halal food than you do regarding halal income? 
it's an intriguing, intriguing question. Um, And having that balance is quite, quite interesting. Um, But I'd like to find out what your thoughts on that. So the way to do that is 07779481822. Oh, goodness me. Um, I'm just getting over my morning. And this morning was, whoa, hectic. Monday mornings are always like that when you're trying to get the children ready for school. And this Monday morning was no exception. I don't know why it is that my girls always get ready on time, but my boys are always slowing down the pace and my house is always absolute chaos. It's it needs some serious risk management taking there. Oh my goodness, if you I would never want to have a camera on in the house um whilst I'm trying to get my children ready. Goodness, maybe I need a little bit of advice on how to risk manage my mornings. And I wonder if my guest is willing to help me on that. Um, uh, Who am I talking about? I'm talking about no other than Majid Waris. He's an international risk management consultant and he's on the line this morning with me now. Assalamu alaikum, Majid. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you for uh, inviting me on this morning when you're trying to manage some risks. <laughs> I'm, you know, you're the perfect guest this morning, Marges, to kind of get me through this risk management of getting the children ready for school. And you're a father yourself, bless you. So what was your morning like this morning, <laughs> getting the children to school? Uh, it, it, you know what? It was quite calm. It was quite calm. I, I to say that um, I have a saying that the best way to manage risks is to transfer them onto someone else. So <laughs> I, had, I had my better half managing those risks for me. So um, the best way is not to take the risks at all. So I didn't take the risks this morning. Now, that's really intriguing. And mashallah, well done to her. But really, as a sales consultant, as a multi-award winning business development manager. Is, oh, yeah, they... I told the idea to her. Yeah, you, to- you must the have done. rewards and the hasanat that you will get for doing all these good deeds. <laughs> bless you, bless you. Now, risk management, I'm sure our listeners will be quite curious and like, what is that? And how did you end up becoming an internationally renowned risk management consultant? Oh, well, that's a very broad question. Um, risks exist in all sorts of forms in our, our general lives, our personal lives, our business uh, practices. And risk management is basically managing those risks and working in ways which we, in which we can try and reduce risks or uh, work in ways which we're um, overcoming those risks to achieve better outcomes. There could be all sorts of risks. It could be related to financial risk. There could be health and safety, environmental, construction. It could be all sorts of risks. So that's in a nutshell what risk management is about. Mm-hmm. Now, business presently or setting up businesses or or expanding seems to be quite a... Um, risky situation or a space to be in at the moment especially with brexit um is this an industry now that you are kind of doing exceptionally well in in trying to advise and guide people and how they can best keep their businesses afloat in the present climate well you know what it's it's um it varies between different industries if you have an industry which is uh product based and you're selling tangible products um, and you're involved in the importing and exporting of goods, then obviously that's going to have a different kind of an impact on you in comparison to someone who's selling uh, services. So if you're in a service-based industry, it could be uh, compliance, legal, accounting, finance, um, you know, human resources, that kind of stuff. Even then, when we look at 
compliance-based industries. Some of our legal system is influenced, if not all, by uh, the European regulations, which mm. we are a part of because we are part of the EU, because of the way our legal system is designed. Uh, we have to adopt, as the UK currently, uh, laws which are passed uh, through Europe uh, into our native countries as members of the EU. So they will somewhat be uh, influenced now and have an impact on this possibly later on if the UK decides not to uh, keep certain laws or amend on them. And this is a, it's a whole complex mm. uh, discussion to be had just on that topic alone. Of but uh, in a nutshell, yes, uh, some businesses will be affected more than others, mm-hmm. uh, but some businesses may thrive on it because it presents itself an opportunity. You know, there are times when we had uh, uh, these, these financial crises in the, in the last uh, couple of decades, um, ups and downs, and people found opportunities within those uh, situations, and some people found that they were going to be uh, left stranded or mm. you know, in more difficult situations. Look at the, the way the, the likes of Aldi and uh, Lidl have mm-hmm. performed. Mm. Because of these financial crises, people have wanted to save their money and not spend mm. so much of, of their uh, savings with, because of the uncertainties. And uh, they've thrived on that. They've, they've multiplied uh, more than any other uh, retail store uh, in that regard. And that reminds me, I've got my shopping list already, so I'll be I'll be taking a visit. But there are other retail stores, people that you can go to. That is not the only one. Um, just doing a bit of a disclaimer there, um, uh, folks. If no, if folks, if you've just tuned in, it is nine minutes past ten. You're listening to the Urban Cube with Misha Miser, taking it all the way up to twelve o'clock this morning. And on the line right now, live, I'm speaking to no other than Managing Director of, Inter- of an International Risk Management Consultancy based in the UK. It's no other than Marjid Virus. Now, Marjid is a graduate in law. He has a certified project management practitioner NLP uh, qualification. Gosh, that sounds that sounds quite fancy. Um, he's an all qualified trainer, international HSE consultant, international speaker, and uh, also a director and host at Pathway to Grow. Now, his uh, his work is recognized internationally in the realms of risk management and mashallah he held the post of a senior risk management consultant and strategic manager on the world renowned masjid al-haram in makkah wow well what an experience majid um from alhamdulillah from doing law to then moving on to obviously your risk management consultancy but ending up in Masjid al-Haram. How did you manage to get a tender like that? You know, this could, I, I should write a book on this probably because of, of how it all went about. And there's so many so many things to be discussed on this. But mm. just, just to keep it short for you, um, I, I actually got a call asking me and inviting me to consider this project. Uh, it wasn't something that I tended for. And what really goes to show is, irrespective of all the other stuff, that sometimes it's the smallest things you do in business mm-hmm. which have a compound effect. Um, I was—I remember I was driving to London to see my sister, and my, my eldest sister lives in London, and I got a call um, asking me about working on this project, and they were, they were quite elusive about it, they weren't very 
uh, uh, transparent about exactly what the project was. I guessed it because I'd already been to Saudi a couple of times. Uh, by this time, I'd already been for Hajj and Umrah. Um, and it was bizarre how they actually got to find out about me. And some people, you know, they underestimate or they downplay the, the smaller things or the efforts that you put in mm-hmm. to get your business out there. At the beginning stages, I remember putting my business on a free listing website and it just so happened they got my details from that site. Could I just... Considering they could have got it from anywhere else. Could I interrupt you there? Um, free listing mm-hmm. site um, on the web. What, what is that exactly? Well, these are sites where you can list your business as a service provider or just generally you're being like getting mm. your pages and mm-hmm. you get the, mm. you get the, uh, the BT phone book and you can get Google. You know, you can put your site on and Google, register your business with Google or Yahoo and all the other free sites. So where you don't have to pay to list your business, mm-hmm. that's basically mm. a free listing. Um, and when you're new in business, you, you're obviously wanting to uh, be very cost effective <laughs> with mm. um, with your marketing strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did, I, I looked for all the places where I could actually get my business listed. If anything, back in them days, because of the way Google worked and the algorithms worked and the way the SEO worked, um, it was a good idea to have a site linked with each other. It may not be the case right now, uh, but the more sites you have linked with each other, the, the, the better it was for your search engine optimization and, and being being seen. Uh, I'm, and I'm going back around 10, uh, 10, 7, 8, 10 years ago. So that's what I mean by free listings. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you can list your business or mm-hmm. make sure your business is present without having to pay anything. And that's, that, that, be, that's quite a smart yeah. move, though, isn't it? It's being quite... Um, aware of what's out there and and this is something that you would advise to potential startup companies or businesses to do something like that every Mm. startup company Mm. and this is something i mention uh every time i do have a class or a session where i am training Mm. startup businesses as part of your marketing strategy you should always look to put your business in places where you don't have to pay for anything anyway Mm. what harm can it do you're not paying anything if anything you just never know what can Mm. transpire from there i mean you you contacted me on facebook if you Mm. think about it and it's not an advertising platform per se but Mm. i use it as such because i utilize it the way i the best way i can to get my my branding my personal brand out there Mm -hmm. i post personal stuff as well as uh, business stuff Uh, but i mix things up and it's just a site where, you know, yes, some, some would argue that there is a cost related to using any social media, mm-hmm. given how much data we part with. Of course. But, um, well, I would suggest, yeah, definitely, by all means, go and find out every site where you can be seen uh, without having to pay anything. And that should be one of the first activities we do in marketing as business owners, as startup companies. Mm-hmm. Some great advice there, guys. We'll be continuing conversations with Majid all the way up to 11 o'clock, inshallah, today. Um, whilst Majid will be talking to us about his journey in the world of business, but also sharing with us now his experiences of working at um, the, mo- uh, the beautiful Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca. Now, you were talking to us um about this tender that you'd uh, received um, for Masjid Al-Haram. So how did that actually come about? You know, um, in the Masjid Al-Haram, you had 
52,000 laborers alone. Um, and these were people from all over the, uh, the world, predominantly from um, third world countries or developing countries. So you had a high volume of workforce, a percentage of workforce doing the manual labor from uh, places like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, um, because they all have to be Muslims as well mm-hmm. because of the, the restrictions. I think we've just uh, lost Majid on the line there. Inshallah, we'll reconnect his call very, very shortly. Um, folks, if you've just tuned in, you are listening to the Urban Cube. And I have great pleasure in speaking to Majid uh, Varis on the line this morning. Now, Majid is a managing director of an international risk management consultancy based in the UK. Um, he's a graduate in law. He's also... Um, a multi-award winning business development trainer, coach and mentor with almost two decades of experience in selling and training sales professionals in both business to consumer and business to business markets and has won numerous accolades for his record breaking performances. Now this um, on today's show we're hoping that uh, speaking to Marjid will inspire any potential startup companies um, and uh, also an opportunity for you guys to get in touch with us if you've got any advice and guidance that you'd like to ask about your business and how to improve your business with Marjid so if you'd like to contact us on 07779481822 now another question that we're asking you guys this morning is it's a, an article that the Malaysian Ministry um, I read uh, about uh, saying that Muslims care more about halal food than halal income. Is that something that you would agree with? If so, or disagree with, um, contact us on 07779481822. And this is a question that I'll be asking Majid uh, as well. Now, Majid is back on the line. Assalamu alaikum, Majid. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, we, we didn't manage that risk properly, did we? No. We, <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> that's a good one there. So the risk management of when the call drops, it is live radio, people. Um, and I've got the perfect guest uh, to get me through the show this morning. Now, Majid, coming back to um, Masjid Al-Haram um, and the opportunity yeah. to actually be able to work yeah. on a project um, mm. in the most uh, gracious and most um, beautiful, holiest places um, that uh, for a Muslim, that must be oh my goodness what an what what an experience you know what i still pinch myself to this very day to kind of uh, understand that it was me how she did that um i i i still uh, you know i just can't find the words to express my gratitude to the almighty um uh, coming back to your your question how you know what i was doing how i got there yeah as I was explaining, that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a large workforce from many different countries. Um, they needed a consultant to come on board to take on a role where they could uh, advise the king's representative. What the king had done is mm-hmm. uh, formed a technical committee, mostly consisting of uh, scholars and professors uh, from the Umar Qura University. Um, at the same time, you had the principal contractors who were in charge charge of the, the actual building work, you had the project directors, you had the civil defense force, um, as well as the, you know, the brigadiers and generals within the civil defense force and the deputy, deputy prince of Mecca. So the job for me was to liaise with all these uh, senior stakeholders and advise on initiatives and interventions to introduce, to reduce 
and reduce the safety, uh, the uh, in any incident or accident, mm-hmm. but at the same time increase the safety performance record. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a mammoth task if you think about it, because the, what people don't realize is that the Haram project wasn't just of the Masjid itself. Masjid al-Haram was just one part of the Haram mm-hmm. expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, what it also consisted of, because it wasn't just the, the Masjid in Makkah and the Haram of Makkah, but it was also the Haram of Medina as well. Mm-hmm. The Masjid al-Nabawi. Wow. Um, now, the Masjid al-Nabawi expansion uh, is actually planned to be eight times bigger than the Masjid of uh, uh, Masjid Haram in Mecca. Wow. But in Mecca alone, you have the expansion of the Masjid. You have the construction of four security high-rises. Each one security high-rise would probably be a project on its own in, in countries like this. You had four of them. You'd have the central utility complex, which is the world's largest remote powering station, um, which feeds the, the, the air conditioning through tunnels for the, for the haram itself. Uh, you had 600-bed hospital. You had two bus stations, metro stations, ring roads, uh, bridges and tunnels. So there was, there was a lot uh, involved. It was a multi-site operation. It wasn't just a the masjid itself sounds um, so overwhelming how do you kind of you know get your head around a project like this um you must have had a team behind you um and it wasn't all left for you to kind of manage no of course so we had one consultant here in the uk who was very experienced we had i took along one of my own consultants from uh, my local neck of the woods and we also had a consultant from lebanon mm-hmm. um we formed the team. Um, I was the strategic manager of the team, and we we worked together. But here's the beauty of it: when you have a lean model and you have interventions which are really innovative in making things happen, they do happen. But you have to be you have to have faith in yourself and, mm. and faith in what you're about to do. Mm. And yes, you know it's quite ironic. We are in a, in in the, one of the places which are pivotal to faith mm. uh, but having faith in yourself is also a big requirement in what you're, you're, you're about to embark upon something so many lives because this was the only I mean if you think about it this is the world's largest construction project and the only project in the world where it's live construction work going on with pilgrims walking through it in Goodness the midst Wow. <laughs> so, wow. So if you imagine the risk rating yes. uh, of a project like this, it was it was sky high. So the experience from working in the most holiest place for Muslims, the, um, what a privilege that has, must have been for you. Alhamdulillah. How did that impact you and uh, as a Muslim? Um, were you always somebody that was quite um, strong in faith prior to going? D- you know, did you see any changes in your viewpoint um, as you as a person, the world around you and your faith? Well, you know... Um I was brought up in uh, a practicing family mm-hmm. as a child. Um, I, I'd been through my own journey, and then I returned back uh, to the more practicing elements uh, when I was in my 20s. Uh, we all go out and uh, you know explore the world, and sometimes we forget. Uh, we need reminding of certain things. For me, there was always the other, the respect element for such places. Um, because it's the way I was always brought up and because of my own research prior to working there, even for when I went for Hajj and Umrah. 
Well, whilst I was there, it did confirm some thoughts in my mind. And these, you know, these are usually related to the social elements of being a Muslim. Mm -hmm. We don't, we, we, we're not supposed to be as creatures, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the animal kingdom, if you call it that, just out there for ourselves. We're not supposed to be just selfish people doing things for ourselves and only concerned with our own benefit. What this confirmed for me was, was you have millions of people entering the same place you know, at the same time. You're shoulder to shoulder with people from countries you've never been to, you may never go to. You're, you know, you're, you're standing next to someone who you may never see ever again. Mm -hmm. And you may have a conversation with them in a language which is only common there uh, in, in, in whichever limited form that, that may be. And sometimes even just sign language, your own made up sign, sign language stuff. Mm -hmm. but I tell you, you know, you see, you see people there and they don't change their ways. And you see people there who have life changing moments mm -hmm. and you can tell by just, just the way they behave. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting activity just to sit there and do some people watching if I'm honest uh, and there's a lot of people to watch a lot of people to watch there is a lot of people to watch yeah. now um, Majid we are in the harem. oh bless you Majid we're heading Sorry. off to a break and folks we'll be continuing the conversation with okay. Majid I'm sure you'll be intrigued to hear his business journey as a, an international multi-award winning um, managing director um, and we're going to be talking about uh, faith fatherhood and business Business straight after the break. Now, if you've got any questions, guys, you know what to do. It's 07779481822. Um, and we'll be catching up with Majid also about an article um, that I read where a Malaysian minister has said Muslims care more about halal food than halal income. So it'd be very intriguing to see what Majid has to say about this as well. And I'll be catching up with some messages. So join me straight after this break. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Catch a creative vibe on the Urban Cube with Sister Shamiza. Hey, good morning and assalamu alaikum. The time is 10.30 exactly and you're listening to me, Shamiza, taking all the way up to 12 o'clock on Where Else is the Urban Cube Show? Brought to you on Inspire FM, loud and proud, positively inspiring the community this morning. And I hope you've had a positive start to the day and particularly the morning and would love to find out where you're listening in from people. Are you listening locally, nationally or internationally? Would love to find out and uh, share with me your thoughts this morning on 07779481822. Send me over a, a salam and I look forward to uh, sending you one back. Now today's show we have the absolute pleasure of joining a tremendous guest all the way um, from Burton-on-Trent I believe this morning. He's joining me and it is no other than Majid Varis. Now Majid Varis is an exceptional brother who's doing, um, who's making his mark in the world of business not just locally, nationally but also internationally. He is a international risk management consult consultant, NLP coach and sales strategist, speaker, host of PT 2G Live. He's the managing director at Tavaris International Consulting and the chair at Humanity Yike. 
let me say that correctly, Humanity Unites. I need my coffee, folks, this morning. Um, and CEO at Faith Safe. Uh, an absolute pleasure speaking to Marge this morning, who was sharing with us his tremendous experience at working at um, Masjid Al-Haram in Makkah, mashallah, as the risk management consultant and strategic manager there. Now on this morning's show, um, Majid is joining us to give you guys a few tips, uh, coaching tips on how to maybe develop in your business and if you have a start-up company. Now interestingly, we're seeing more and more companies folding um, and we're seeing the retail industry closing shops and opening more online. A very, very interesting business, uh, the way businesses are being, um, you know, as for com- consumers, it's very, very interesting to observe how our spending habits and shopping habits have changed. And um, and I'm looking forward to speaking to Marjid a little bit more about ways to kind of possibly improve um, our our outlook on the business world. Now, Marjid is on the line this morning and, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him joining us um, and sharing his thoughts. Assalamu alaikum, Majid. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you so very much for hanging on there. And um, we got we we put all the risk management things in place. So hopefully um, we kept you on the line there. It's an absolute pleasure, Majid, um, having you join us this morning. Um, and in particular, sharing sharing your experiences. Um, for somebody, I'm going to say young, you've done extraordinarily well in um and kind of supporting businesses, but what's, what is it in particular that you aim to do or what is it that people approach you to help them with? Uh, various different things. I think from a startup perspective, uh, new businesses want to get out there. They want to be known. They want to know what the best way of getting sales are in, what they want to know, how to convert their sales better or and, and these are usually the primary objectives mm-hmm. for new businesses they want to get their money rolling in they want to get their product services out there they want to get to know people they want people to get to know them mm-hmm. you see there was a time when we would we would say it's not about uh what you know but who you know mm-hmm. um but today it's not actually the case it, it's not it's not even restricted to who you know but more importantly who, who knows you Gosh, okay. Because you may know a lot of people, but mm-hmm. not many people may know you. And with platforms like social media platforms out there, uh, which are able to give you give you the, uh, the the leverage that's required to run a business, there's no excuses. You know, if you're wanting to be uh, getting out there, if you want to get the brand out there, whatever you're selling, whatever business model you have then you have the tools at your fingertips. It's a matter of tapping into them mm-hmm. uh, and making the most of them uh, whilst managing uh, them at the same time. So it's all... So the most common things from a startup point of view, yeah. So it's all about the branding? Well, I, I would say it's about the branding, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say it's all about okay. branding. We have d- different facets of business which we need to focus on and have synergy with mm-hmm. holistically. You have to take mm-hmm. a holistic approach because if we just focus on branding, we may neglect another element of mm-hmm. the business. If we focus on just selling, we may neglect another element of the business. I mean, people sometimes use the terms marketing, sales, branding, advertising quite synonymously, mm-hmm. but they are, they are actually very separate disciplines. And understanding that sometimes requires uh, 
self-development. And one thing I would, if there's, a, if, there's a, if there's one tip that I would say to the audience to really focus on is uh, investing in yourselves. Mm -hmm. Invest in yourselves to understand the difference the difference between all the different things that happen in business and then understand which ones you're likely to do yourself, which ones you can get away with doing yourself at the beginning, and then which ones really should be outsourced to someone who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're not, as business owners, you know, at the beginning, we are the accountant, we are the mm -hmm. advertising agency, we are the branding people, we are the, the face of the business, we are everything. We might even be the web designers at the beginning because uh, we don't, we might not have the budget to uh, to build a website or pay someone to build a really good website. But there are now tools available which can help to do that. Back in my days, there wasn't uh, that facility or that luxury to get these things without paying something. So where there is a need to pay someone to do something, do it. Really, it pays off. It, it's an investment. And it's mm -hmm. an investment in yourself to mm -hmm. understand how to run your business um, without understanding that, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be a long haul road and it's going to be a struggle. So investing in yourself is key. So it's not just investing in your business. It's also investing in your interpersonal well, skills as well. You are your business. You are your business, aren't you? So when you invest in your business, why won't you invest in yourself? So would you then suggest it's very important for all startup companies to attend a workshop of some sort, some coaching, mentoring, um, development program? Well, yeah, definitely. You see, when I say invest in yourself, it doesn't have to always translate to uh, monetary investment mm -hmm. or financial investment. It could be investment of time. Mm -hmm. It could be investment of effort. There are a fair number of opportunities where people can go out there and learn from people who have been through what mm. you know what you're likely to go through that could be workshops organized by startup companies mm -hmm. it actually could be networking events where mm. they have speakers and whilst you're uh, there might be free networking events in in in, in the areas where you are um, but even if there's aren't any free networking events and you have to pay you know a five or a ten or 15 quid uh just to get into a networking event and mingle in with mm. other people it's worth the investment obviously everyone needs to do their fair share of due diligence mm -hmm. where they go and you know what they're likely to to um, interact or who they're likely to interact with who the speaker might be and whether it's, it's going to be something that benefits them but never pre judge anybody or anything because sometimes you find the most valuable you know pearls of wisdom or golden nuggets from places where you least expect them now you spoke of due diligence so how does one actually differentiate from say a maverick coach um to somebody that has a success rate and actually does help to create change oh shamiza You've you opened up a whole can of worms here with this with that subject of, of maverick coaches. <laughs> it seems to be the bane of a lot of people's mm. lives uh, at the moment. There seems there seems to be a, an influx of mm. coaches. Uh, every you know you pick up a turn and a coach comes out of it, as, as the saying goes. Um, anyone you see, coaching is an industry which isn't regulated, right. so anyone can in theory, call mm -hmm. themselves a coach. Um, they can put a backstory to it, uh, say, I did this and I, and I did that. The question is, um, 
what are the results that they've that they that they've brought with mm. them you know anyone can then argue if you if we were to play the devil's advocate anyone can then argue well look you know we all start from somewhere new coaches will not have any proven results because they've not had anyone to work with right mm. so give them an opportunity and they'll build on that the problem is Going back to the conversation of investing in yourself, mm-hmm. I would say when you're doing your due diligence, have a look at the, the back background of the coach, find out what they have uh, achieved in the past, ask them if they've, um, if they've coached people before, look, at, look for testimonials, mm-hmm. check to see if they've got any certifications. Now, I'm not saying that certifications are mandatory to, to be a good coach. I coached for many years without having a formal certification. But again, I'll link it back to uh, you know investing in yourself. If you know as a business that you're likely to be asked for something which will give you an advantage in getting clients, why will you not get that something? If I'm, as a consultant, as a risk management consultant, if I know that some of my clients will be asking me for training services, although I may be an exceptional trainer, until I have a certain certificate, which could be, I don't know, even a, the old petals course that they used to do. Um, why would I not get that if it opens the doors with mm. other opportunities? Why mm. would I be stingy and miserly in getting myself that certificate? But that certificate and invest in themselves. Yeah, like you said, coaches right. need to invest in themselves to get um, to because yeah. you're about you're also about learning. Um, and developing your skills to make it a more successful session with these individuals because it's a competitive industry even as, for a coach. Absolutely. What was it that actually made you want to do this line of work, Marjid? Because um, you were a law graduate to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see, I come from a family background where my father passed away when I was 14 years old. I always had a lot of responsibilities from a very young age. Um, and when I went out to do my legal practice course, I got a place for the College of Law, which is a renowned place where you could do the LPC to qualify as a solicitor. Uh, well, on your journey to qualify as a solicitor. Um, I didn't want to take out any loans because back in them days, you know, we didn't come from uh, a well-off family. My, my father had always either run a shop or he was a manual laborer mm-hmm. um, in this country. So. I didn't have the financial backing as as some people might. And I didn't want to take a loan out. I also had the responsibility of, of a couple of sisters uh, and I also had a brother who was still single at the time. And so in, in time, you know, they had to be wed and uh, had to heavily contribute towards uh, their journeys in life. So for me, I wanted to take a year out. I thought I'll take a year out, I'll go and get a job, I'll work, save as much money as I can, and then I'll pay for my LPC. It just turned out that I landed myself in a in a sales job, mm-hmm. and it was one of those hardcore, door-to-door, cold-calling, commissional structures, um, as uh, you know, as challenging as it can get. And I happened to be very good at it. I was developed to be good at it, and I was I soaked up everything like a sponge. And then not only was I trained to sell, but I was also trained to train others. Then I was trained to coach those trainers into training others then i was coached to uh well i was coached to mentor those trainers to develop them into coaches so there's like a hierarchical system here mm-hmm. um eventually for a, few, a number of years i uh, 
I, I broke the national records uh, uh, in number of sales as an individual, as a group, as a team, and then even as an office when I had my own office in Manchester. So for a number of years, I was a top performing office um, with several other offices below me uh, as the uh, as the manager, and uh, that's how I actually got into the, the coaching industry because I realized that I had a way of transferring information um, and inspiring people uh, to do better for themselves mm-hmm. um, in a way which my colleagues weren't able to do. So I nurtured that, and and I, I would say I would say I'm still on a learning journey. I, I don't think we're, anyone's ever a hundred percent complete. Um, so, Marjit, yeah, could, that, could I really just what, ask you then, what was yeah. it? I mean, sales is a cutthroat industry. It's dog eat dog. Mm. You know, it's all about results. Mm. It's all about m- the monetary gain, and people are put under a lot of pressure to make sure they hit their targets. So why, you know, you come across as quite a, you know, softly spoken, quite amiable um, and somebody, you know, from listening to you, I feel that you smile when you speak. So what is it that is, are those the things that kind of put you ahead of everybody else in the sales industry? Well, my my style of selling has always been very unorthodox. It's been very counterintuitive, I would say as well. It's it's not what people expect from salespeople. Mm. And that's what got me my results in my in my humble opinion i think you know i've never been the very uh upfront rara type of loud mm-hmm. guy mm-hmm. Uh, eccentric um so for me it was having to utilize my own skills and make them work for me whatever i did in life it had to work because i didn't have uh, uh, you know a basic income in the sales role and mm. neither did I even have uh, any paid jobs other than around six to nine months of my whole working life I've always been self-employed I've mm. always been an independent contractor never had a basic salary so what I did had to work so for me you're right I I may not come across as your typical salesperson but because there are now uh, you know these uh, what would you say, stereotypical images mm. and views of salespeople, what they're supposed to be like. And because I wasn't that, maybe is what um, that got me through. And that's basically what I teach when I, when I train people mm-hmm. in the art of selling. It's the art of asking intelligent questions. Mm-hmm. Most people do a lot of talking when they're trying to sell something. My style is quite the opposite. I, they go by the 50-50 rule, or they say the 2-1 ratio. God's given us two ears and one gob for a reason. You know, use it in that ratio. But I would go far as to say use the Pareto principle of the 80-20 rule. You know, you listen for 80% mm. of the time and mm. only speak for the 20%. But that 20% you use to speak is, should only be used either to build credibility um, and trust, a connection, or ask the right question. So essentially, for me, sales isn't about convincing your prospect. It's about coaching them. Mm. And you coach people by not giving them the answer, but asking them the right question so they form the answer themselves, which is the solution that they're going to buy into, which is you. Do you think that has this has an Islamic connection in any way? Because Islamically, we should be sort of holding back and really thinking before we speak and, and, and observing the way we communicate? Good question. Well, etiquettes do form, form a large part of uh, our communication uh, strategy, even in an Islamic concept, in an Islamic way. Um, but in, also in an Islamic way, it's not about um, 
you know, being deceitful ethics and, mm-hmm. you know, morals come into all this. Mm-hmm. And when we, t- when we talk on that subject, yes, ideally you should allow people the, the mental space to make decisions for themselves rather than force them with the decisions. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting because when we talk about things from an Islamic perspective, you realize that a lot of what we do can be changed or can be improved upon to, to, to become aligned with the Islamic perspective. And sometimes we might already be doing it, but if we're not already doing it with that intention, we don't get that mm. same reward. Mm. If we do it with that intention, we get more of a reward. Now, ethics and business, um, or being more ethically Islamic, uh, you know, in Muslim businesses, is is quite um, an interesting topic for the show this morning because um, I was quite taken aback by an article by the Malaysian minister who says that Muslims care more about halal food than halal income. Um, would you agree with that statement, uh, Majid? Uh, yes, wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see... I'll give you an example here. Uh, I visit a lot of different businesses, mm-hmm. and sometimes I, I, deli- I visit uh, faith-based institutions like masajid and madaris. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the common things that I come across is people. They, these are these are Islamic establishments, mm-hmm. right? And one of the common things they that I come across is when they say to us, you know, in Punjabi they say Allah malike. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, we don't need to think about health and safety. Allah malika, you know, God will look after us. Wow. We, we don't okay. have anything to worry about. One of the examples which I give to them is this: when I was working in the Haram project, some of your uh, listeners may remember the the infamous uh, crane incident in 2015. <clears throat> this is when a crane collapsed into the Masjid Al Haram, and um, uh, you had over 130 hujjaj. Uh, being martyred. Oh, I was the yeah. consultant on that project, and this is this. The Haram is known as Baytullah, the house of Allah. This is His house, the Lord's house, yeah, which He identifies. He, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, identifies as His own house, uh, symbolically, of course. And if something like that can happen there, wow. why could it not happen anywhere else? And when it comes to ethics, and it comes, we have a, a, a responsibility Islamically. Halal food isn't the only thing. We'll worry about where the next jawal are going to come from, whether mm-hmm. the chicken used in there is going to come from a halal abattoir or not. But what about the transactions people have made throughout the business or the organizations they run? Are they halal? How much interest-based uh, you know, money is being earned? What about the payment terms being agreed? What about equal opportunities between people of different different uh, gender mm-hmm. what about health and safety the saving of lives you know we have a lot of examples within uh, our Islamic history where uh, even in the hadith in the Prophet ﷺ said you know we are we are all shepherds and we are we have responsibility over our flocks mm. so this is the this is the neighborhood principle being developed 1400 years ago and, and in our English legal system it was only done like a hundred years ago the neighborhood principle our responsibilities extend to anyone who our activities or omissions are, uh, are being affected by. Um, you know, Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said uh, to the Kaaba itself, you know, um, that the, the, the blood of a mu'min, the, the, even one blood drop of a mu'min, is more beloved to Allah or more sacred to Allah than the Kaaba and the whole of its surroundings. Now imagine oh, that. Mashallah. The life of a person, how you know, the sanctity of life, how sacred it is, yet we take these things for granted 
and we'll trample over each other to try and kiss the hijri aswad uh, and do damage to each other, which is, you know, it, I just can't fathom these things sometimes. And we, we seem to have lost our train of thought. Um, so when it comes to ethics, yes, the transactions, the conversations, the environments that we're in, mm. you know, the things that we do, are you attending events? What kind of events are there? What happens in those events? You know, how far do you go or how much do you refrain or put a restraint on yourself from being involved in activities which could be deemed un-Islamic? Mm-hmm. The thing is, people say that, you know, for them, it's it's the risk of losing out. You know, there's a, there's a new term these youngsters use nowadays, FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, and that is much the case on social media. It's much the case on um, general gatherings when people... Uh, are going to gatherings and they want to go there just because they might be the ones uh, to be seen on their social media profiles. Oh, we got to to be tagged here, or we got mm. we got to get go here, and you know, it, it, it really, in reality, it's 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 all an illusion. Mm-hmm. Allah Subhanahu ex- mm-hmm. explains this world as an illusion, and if we are believing in those illusions, we're really becoming delusional, aren't we? So it's having that balance, Majid. How does one maintain that balance? Because social media um, is like second nature. People would, uh, you know, they'll look at their phones before they brush their teeth in the morning. They'll look at their, you know, notifications before they speak to their children. Um, How does one maintain this balance? And, you know, what sort of future are we heading towards really because the level of mental health that is impacting us because of social media um and kind of you know keeping yeah. up with the bushras and the joneses <laughs> yeah well you know Shamiza, I, it, it's odd because a knife is a tool right it can be used for positive things good things productive things it could be used for negative things mm-hmm. it could be used to commit crime with or kill someone you know it, but a knife in itself isn't the one to blame it's the user of the knife which is mm-hmm. to blame um and held responsible similarly okay. social media is a tool mm-hmm. and it can be used for positive stuff it could be used for dawah it could be used for sharing knowledge mm-hmm. uh, experiences and good things but on, on the contrary it can be used for negative stuff and it can be you know it can consume you i think this is where a lot of emotional intelligence comes into play and i feel that it's our duty as parents to actually invest in our children mm-hmm. and train them on how to use social media and if we're, if we're falling weak ourselves go for a detox every ramadan okay i go on a digital detox mm, sounds good for 30 days i do not I, yeah, I, I don't just do physical detox. I do emotional, like uh, uh, spiritual and social media digital detox. Uh-huh. I don't touch my social media accounts. I log off. I do not log in. The only one that always remains on, but I don't log in purposefully, is LinkedIn because okay. it's a business-only platform. Right. And if I have any inquiries through that, I will respond to it. But when it, uh, although I use Facebook quite heavily for business, mm-hmm. I, I log off Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter. That's it. They're off. Majid, we are Majid, we're heading off to a break. Now, I have a question to ask you. Um, I'm so taken aback by this digital detox, and I want to ask you: Will you join us after the break for another ten to fifteen minutes to talk about this? Is it possible? 
Yeah, go on then. Fantastic. Folks, we are going to be speaking to Marjid because I'm sure you're curious to find out a little bit more about this digital detox that he's talking about um, and also discussing his role as a father um, as well uh, and how he's able to manage faith amongst his children in the... uh, Uh, So we're going to be heading off to a break, folks. Do not go away. Grab yourself a cuppa if you like. Join us straight after. And whilst we're still speaking to Marjid, who's on the line with me, and we'll be talking to him a little bit more about the business world. So stay with me or join me straight after this. Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Catch a creative vibe on the Urban Cube with Sister Shamiza. Good morning and assalamu alaikum. It is 11 o'clock Monday, 18th of November and you are listening to the Urban Cube with me, Shamiza, taking you all the way up to 12 o'clock this morning. Now on the show, I've had the absolute pleasure of joining, uh, being joined by no other than Majid Varis. He's on the line with us all the way up from north, up from up north, and um, he's sharing with us his experiences of being an international risk management consultant who he is based in the UK but mashallah he has had the opportunity to work in the most um, significant and most beautiful and important places which is no other than uh, Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca uh, what an absolutely ex- extraordinary um, experience that he had there and you can catch the uh, the conversation on the repeat of the show 8pm this evening. Now um, Majid is not just an international risk management consultant he's also a multi award winning business development trainer coach and mentor with almost two decades of experience in selling and training sales professionals uh, prof- professionals in both business to consumer and business to business markets and he's won numerous accolades for his record-breaking performances now on the show we've had the absolute pleasure of speaking to him and getting some tips and advice for any um, businesses or startup companies um so it's been quite tremendous. Now, if you have any questions, guys, you know what to do. You can contact us on 07779481822. Now, I've had um, Brother Asif uh, messages asking us, um, who is this brother? Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Asif. His name is Majid Varis, um, and he's on the line right now. Asif, Brother Asif, if you've got any questions, do feel free to WhatsApp us. We would be more than happy to read them out. Now, we'll be catching up with text messages um, and around the actual question that I've asked you this morning and that is um, the Malaysian minister has said that Muslims care more about halal food than halal income would you agree or disagree with that now it was very interesting listening to brother Marjid and his take on this but I'm asking you guys what's your thoughts now sister Saima Khan has said we should be more conscientious so she thinks we should be more conscientious. Would you agree with that? Thank you, Sister Saima, for that message. And she also says, great show. Um, thank you. Thank you for listening. I always like to know who's listening. Is it just more than one person? It would be great to find out. So do do contact us on 07779481822. Now, Marjiz is back on the line. Really, really delighted to have him back on the line. Um, and he's been very patiently li- uh, listening in um, and observing the risk management 
on the show this morning. Uh, Brother Marja, thank you so very much for staying on the line and continuing the conversation with me. It's been really inspiring, very much so considering how worrying it has been for for just general employees at the moment, not knowing whether they're the company that they're working in is going to fold or not. We saw, you know, Thomas Cook um, folding. We've seen, you know, recently Mother, Mother Care has folded. It, you just never know who the, which the next business is going to be. Now, is this um, something that is going to put off young entrepreneurs to come forward and um, set up businesses or just join the business industry or retail industry? You know, sometimes we find opportunities in negative situations, and that's what I would uh, advise anyone thinking about going into business. First, to go out and do some market research. Go Mm -hmm. and find out the industry you're wanting to work in. How is it likely uh, to be impacted by your presence? And the number one thing to focus on is what value are you going to be Mm -hmm. providing to your service users or consumers? Because you can you can go out and, and start a business in anything, but if you're not sure about what value you're providing, what you know, people talk about mm. USPs and unique mm. unique selling points. That's all well and good, but it, it only lasts so long. You see, look at the industry of, of um, how we listen to things like lectures or mm. you know uh, nasheeds and stuff like that. Back in the days, you know, you would hear. Uh, the beautiful recitation of the Quran on, uh, even before the radio came out you had LPs right mm. from LPs we got cassettes and from cassettes we ended up having CDs and from CDs we've now turned all digital um, these are all things all the things and innovations which have disrupted the market and if we've not gone on you know found, you know, found ourselves to, to be joining or embracing these changes we're not going to be successful for very long. So when people hear about these negative situations, they should at least form a mindset that, mm-hmm. okay, if this is going to happen, what, what opportunities are presented? Have a look at the opportunities which are presented from every, every situation which could be perceived as negative, but there could be positives surrounding it, which other people aren't looking at. And I would say, you know, don't always listen to what you hear on the media uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of media sometimes, uh, 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 by that I don't mean you, Shemaya. I was going to interject (laughs) there. Folks, listen to Inspire FM. Don't listen to him. (laughs) (laughs) Let me premise this by saying this. It doesn't include you. But but generally when you hear negative news on the media, it's it's selling, right? Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. controversy and negative stuff usually sells well. Yeah, bad news uh, sells, like sells papers. It's, uh, yeah, mm. exactly. So I, I would say do your own independent research mm-hmm. rather than just always relying on other people's opinions. Um, because it, and even Islamically, the concept of taklid, which is blind following, is, is not uh, permissible. So follow that. <laughs> now, um, Social media following and likes, Instagram likes and and kind of branding is the big thing. And a lot of um, young people seem to just get on the bandwagon and use that as a measure of success. I want to ask you about millennials and coaching them because research is suggesting that because of social media and this, you know, um, 
always looking down on a phone where young people are not able to kind of develop their positive inter or be able to read um, faces and reading a face is so part of selling, right? Inter, um, interpersonal skills that they are a market that's actually lose. Uh, that's this is a generation um, that is not going to be able to successfully communicate or build businesses. Hi, can you hear me, Majid? Have we, I think the call might have dropped. Folks, we are speaking to Majid Varis, um, who is a international risk management consultant. He's ha he has been kind enough to actually join the show from 10 o'clock all the way up to 11.30, sharing with us some great tips, especially for startup companies. Um, he is a multi-award business development trainer, coach, and mentor with almost two decades of experience in selling and training sales professionals in both uh, business to consumer and business to business markets, and has won numerous accolades for his record-breaking performances. Now, Marjith, uh, it's been quite tremendous speaking to you about the journey that you've had in um, the world of risk management and business development training. Now, the question I had for you before um, uh, you disappeared for a cup of tea, it seems, um, is yeah. young is the millennials. Sorry, uh, individuals. Sorry. Oh, bless you. So it's it's <laughs> about. Um, millennials and millennials, um, lack yes. of you know communication or their their level of communication it's an industry it's, it's I've, I've read research suggesting that the, you know what um, industry valleys are quite worried and rightly so there are a lot of complexities which are affecting the millennials and they say that you know people of um, my age who were born in the 70s I'm not so sure about you Shemaiza but we, we were we were the last people who we would be the last people to remember what life was like without the internet um, before the internet really took off I remember the days we used to go to the libraries to do research you know and then when we got CDs we did the Britannica I think wow. it was, uh, encyclopedia yeah. on the PC it was like wow you know we've got we've got books in our home or we've got information at our fingertips today everybody wants everything instantaneously mm. they want things with quick results they mm. want shortcuts mm. they're not willing to fail and go get back up again uh well it's not i can't stereotype and say that's the case with everybody because there will be some people who do but there seems to be more of a case of rewarding for rewarding people just for taking part rather than achieving something right of significance or something meaningful mm -hmm. um and there are, you know, we can be very critical of a lot of systematic things which have been implemented within the education system, within the world in general. But one thing that I I am very fearful of is, is how in the future our kids might become big softies. They're not able to take, you know, real uh, negative situations right. and, you know, work through or plow mm. through some adversities because they give up quite quickly. That's interesting. They're mollycoddled, um, so, right? In the school system, yeah. spoon-fed, even at home. You know, um, parents are cutting corners when it comes to kind of discipline because of uh, the way that, uh, you know, children have rights. That's fairly so. <laughs> but parents well, are kind of losing if, rights if, too. If a child is, yeah, if a child is, is, is whinging, you know, mm. it, let's just say, take a toddler, for example, it's easy to just 
you know, hand them a phone or an iPad and say, there you go, and keep them entertained. Gosh, yes. Isn't it? It's it's so easy. How, we, we can't... how damaging is that? Extremely so. And I want to ask you, as um, you're a father, mashallah, of um, how many children? Five. Mashallah, mashallah, five children. So how do you balance fatherhood and this influence of sort of, you know, the, the like, fate, well, apps, really? I spend, I try to spend as much time as possible personally myself with them. I mean, okay. when I'm out of the country or when I'm out of town, it's not so easy. But I dedicate certain segments of my week specifically for my kids. Mm-hmm. And we do things together. We'll go swimming. We'll go and play badminton. Um, even if we're at home watching something, it will be something educational, mm-hmm. something historic. Um, I give them, you know, uh, things to play with, which aren't your traditional digital things, like, you know, whiteboard. I'll give them whiteboard and markers. We're playing hangman, for example. Cool. Um, we, you know, we play uh, finders, keepers, and you know, the traditional old school mm. type of activities. Which what what the, the kids in the seventies used to do, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I try and do, imitate that. I don't think we turned out badly or as bad, but, you know, it's, it's what you know, isn't it? You, you do what you can. Mm-hmm. And they were a great learning tool because you're looking, there's focus, there's diligence, there is, you know, a little bit of creativity there, there is that bringing together the family, it's family time as well, and, and they that is developing key skills, key skills that will I help... Thought- yeah, I taught my son how to play drafts or checkers Ooh, if you're American. Fantastic. And he was seven years old and he beat his uh, elder cousin who who had just graduated in uh, biomedical sciences. Ooh, <laughs> like, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> my, I, I, that's that I bet that made you feel my, proud. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely, you know. Uh, I couldn't get my head through the door that day. But uh, there's there's one of my sons, Musa, who's um, he's at the top of uh, uh, the charts for, I, I don't know if some of you may have heard, as parents you may have heard of certain tools you can use like Mathletics mm. on, on your iPad. If you do have an iPad, you know, make the games productive. Mm. This is all about working out uh, mathematical equations. Right. And he's he's like at the top, he can answer, he's like a little whiz kid, he answers like 149 questions in 60 seconds. Oh, fantastic. Um, I, I'm just about reading the next question and he's mm. already answered it, moved on to the next So one. he's kind of training uh, his brain very young and this is about, this is the whole thing about coaching and mentoring, isn't it? It's like trying to get mm. the children, find their skill set, find what their strength is and keep that and developing that. Do you ever find as a father that you are actually using strategies on your children? Can you actually help yourself or, you know, (laughs) the mentoring, coaching stuff? Of course. Here's the key thing. When you have children who are going to challenge you, because they will always challenge you, they want to explore the boundaries, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you have children who are challenging you, rather than giving them the answer to their questions, ask them counter questions. Okay. Get them to explore the answers and inshallah if you ask the right question you will get an answer which befits you and gets the results at the end of the day well wow. and then that if they get the answer it means that they've taken ownership of the answer and they've accepted it if you give them the answer they can always challenge it and not mm, agree mm. but they've derived to the answer um and as long as you've asked the right question or there is a strategy to put into place and how to ask the right questions um, then what you're essentially doing is you're coaching them mm-hmm. rather than convincing them, as I was saying about sales. So the sales comes into this, whether you know, whether you use them on your parents, your children, your partners, uh, um, or your in-laws. 
I'm not taking responsibility. I'm just going to put that disclaimer out there for you. <laughs> what I want to ask you is, do you ever find yourself that, you know, your family is saying, do you know what, Marjid? Chubgarja, that's your sales pitch. Leave leave it out, All mate. All the time. <laughs> actually, it's... Uh, uh, actually, you know what? Some people do, um, but not very often. Okay. These are these are people who aren't like within my close circles. Right. But they they do that because I they know that I'll get to the root of the problems or the challenges that they uh, that they have expressed and they just want to hold on to them. Some people have a, have a habit of finding a, a problem for every solution. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So those kinds of people will always tell me put <laughs> Um, But one thing that you're not leaving out is your work in the community, mashallah. Um, You you work in the heart of... Humanity Unite. Humanity Unite. Um, Tell us a little bit more about this work that you do. Well, it's another initiative I get my children involved with. Mashallah. Um, It's um, it's a a charity to uh, help the homeless people Mm -hmm. of our local area. Mm-hmm. Um, it was initially um, the idea was concepted by a couple of my friends whilst I was still working in Saudi when I came back they wanted me to come on board and suggested we do it more regularly rather than just over Christmas and New Year holidays mm-hmm. so we decided to bridge the gaps within the community where the homeless people didn't have or the rough sleepers didn't have anywhere to go during mm-hmm. the week to get home mm-hmm. meals um, so we initiated that my son actually came up with the name um, I designed the logo, so it happened to be a bit of a family affair. But my my friends who are really now taking the lead on this, you know, it's again putting into uh, place the right people. And I'm blessed to have, to have a really solid team who really run those events when I'm not even there. Mm-hmm. And they are, I, I can't even take credit for it myself anymore. It's them guys who are leading the way. But it's, it's something that I would always want to be associated to and get the kids involved um, because it is about giving back, and it's mm. not just the, the local com- uh, homeless community in Burton, but it's also other charitable initiatives we we embark upon mm. and get people involved with. Because it's, in essence, we are creatures to help fellow creatures, and mm. um, you know this is hukukul ibad as it it turns into. You know these are the hak of other people on us, and we we can't forget that. And it's explicitly mentioned in the Quran that our um, uh, our income or our savings, the ex, uh, extra stuff that we hold, other people do have hak on, on uh, whether you know we try and uh, mask that with any other justification or not is a totally different thing. But in reality, everyone has hak on us in different ways. Who we, uh, any people who we have uh, any kind of interactions with, and the interactions and the hak that other people have on us are not just with the Muslim community in Burton. This is the wider community that your children Absolutely. are supporting. And Hukukul, yeah, Ibad is not referring to Muslims alone. It's mm-hmm. every single person. In fact, the people who we feed and look after, homeless people, we give them free haircuts, clothing, tents, clo- uh, the the meals. None of them. In fact, only one recently is a Muslim. They're all non-Muslim. MashaAllah. And how can people get engaged in the area of Burton with the work that you're doing with this charity? Give us the name of the charity again. Or is this is this charity um, just... How does it work as a charity? Is it registered or...? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's in the process of being changed into a community interest company. Okay. Um, which it holds a charitable status mm-hmm. uh, because this will be the quickest way of getting it registered as a charity. We've been going for a couple of years now, but because of the growth, mm-hmm. we've decided 
rather than working just as a voluntary group with an identity to incorporate it so there's a proper structure. Okay. So people can actually get in touch with us via our Facebook page. Uh, we have a basic web page, but it, it really, you know, kind of, it's just there for um, communication purposes and for people to, because we don't just do the, the homeless feeding initiatives. We also send out food parcels wow. for people who are living under the bread line. So how they, are you able to fund this? It's always been funded by myself, my friends, personally. Mashallah. Um, it's only recently, um, in the last year or so, we've had people making regular contributions now mm-hmm. who want to take part in it. <clears throat> so whether it's five pounds uh, mm-hmm. a week or a month or you know ten pounds, whatever they feel comfortable with. And how does it make you feel? You know, when because you lead a very very busy professional life, um, is this the way mm. you switch off when you're able to kind of support the work, um, feeding the homeless and and interacting with them? You know, Shamaya, when you enjoy what you do, you never really feel like you're working. Okay. So um, I I don't ever feel like switch off unless it's after I've had to write audit reports. Mm-hmm. And if I've audited uh, like complex sites and I've had to write reports, then I will feel that I've actually done some work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll want to switch off. And I'll usually have an ice cream because I have a weakness for sweetness. But uh, otherwise, I don't, I, I'm, yeah, I'm cool with everything I do. Mashallah. And the fact that you're actually inspiring um, your children to get involved, and that's the greatest skill, I think, or greatest gift a parent can give to their children because you're kind of developing oh, the next future to show empathy mm. um, uh, and also care and sensitivity, a great element of our faith, mashallah. You spoke about Huck and huck onto others, you know, giving to others now. Um, I think our listeners will be quite taken aback by the fact that um, uh, you donated your Hajj money to the uh, victims and survivors of, uh, you know, the tsunami. Is that, um, am I allowed to share that? No, (laughs) I wasn't wanting to uh, uh, share that, but... um... Yeah, you've mentioned it now. So I know uh, I have to the many listeners, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful um, example of humanity and mashallah. Um, just a side of uh, Majid that um, I've revealed, which is, um, the, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I had been saving up for Hajj back in the day for uh, for a while because I was yearning to go. Um, and at the time when the tsunami took place, it was um, it was just heart wrenching. I I couldn't I couldn't just kind of sit there with knowing that I had surplus cash in the account and not do anything. Um, so yeah, I, I donated my Hajj fund to all of it to to the, to the tsunami victims. Mashallah. Thank you for sharing that. I know I kind of uh, kind of threw that one at you, but I think it's a beautiful example of um, serving humanity. Alhamdulillah. May you know that action give you the barga um, in the work that you're doing right now. Now, apart from being a international um, risk management consultant and a, and a multi-award winning um, uh, business development trainer, you're also a host and a motivational yeah. speaker, and a, you like to be in front of the camera, I see. Um, I guess it comes into it more than anything else. <laughs> I do, yes. I host um, a segment called P2G Live, mm-hmm. which is a part of Pathway to Grow. Uh, so we invite 
prominent business people, subject specialists into the studio, mm-hmm. and uh, we record conversation just like, very much like what you and I are doing right mm-hmm. now, but it's on camera. Um, and uh, yeah, that goes out on places like LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. Uh, if people want to see more of that, they can just uh, search for my name uh, or P2G Live and um, they'll, they'll find some content there. And why is that important? Why is it important to be able to, uh, to share knowledge like this, snippets like this? Because it's free snippets, right, of advice and guidance. And why, why do you feel that you need to be doing this? Well, you know, we can uh, not do it and it's not going to affect anyone you know in, in a detrimental way from our side but by doing it you have the chance of uh, growing together so one of the uh, taglines we have for pathway to grow is network learn mm-hmm. and grow mm-hmm. and these are important elements of any business per- for any business person or any business uh, by networking you get to find more people who are like-minded mm-hmm. uh, you learn from people who are in the room and also the keynote speakers or speakers on the guest uh, as guests on shows and by networking and learning if you implement it you will grow uh, if you're growing your knowledge you you know knowledge isn't anything until it's acted upon really so you know putting it into practice is down to the listener or the audience it's 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 the act of practicing what we've learned which is more important than the act of learning itself now you've mentioned networking and networking is something that you're quite prominent in with events that you uh, participate and lead in um, Mm. Birmingham um, that have a little element of chat in there too chat Um, we're heading off to a break heading off to a break now uh, Majid Um, do you want to quickly tell us what that is Um, we've got about 47 seconds and I'm going to have to say uh, goodbye to you halfway to grow just yeah, Google it, put it, look at it, look at it up on uh, on Facebook, whatever you want to look on social media. We're there, Pathway to Grow. We have several different type of events. Serial Network is breakfast, uh, coffee and natter, daytime events, chutney and chat. That's what it was. Event. Chutney and chat. So most of the Saturdays are women only uh, Saturday events, and they're not just in Birmingham. We've got Warsaw, Wuhan, fantastic, and Bromsgrove, Leicester. They're all around the Midlands. They're more, yeah, so the, 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 you can find one quite close to you if you're in the Midlands or near the Fantastic. Midlands. So Fantastic. And, and, and hopefully we can network, learn and grow together. And thank you so very much, Marjit, for joining us today. Marjit from Waris <coughs> Consultancy, it's you're been welcome. a pleasure. Thank you so very much. We're heading off to a break now, guys. And after, uh, it's Ahmed Najjar. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. This is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Catch a creative vibe on the Urban Cube with Sister Shamiza. Good morning. Assalamu alaikum. It is 11.30, the final half an hour of the show. It is the Urban Cube with me, Shamiza, taking you all the way up to 12 o'clock and what a show it's been. I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Majid Varis, uh, who's an international risk management consultant. And uh, he has been speaking to us about lots of very business orientated tips on how to um, develop your business. He also talked about his uh, experience um, working as the um, at the, at the Masjid Al-Haram um, in Mecca 
he was a senior risk management consultant and strategic manager there. He also talked about his role as a father and also taking a conscientious decision in encouraging the children to work um, with just away from, you know, apps and digital gadgets so uh, or so folks do tune in to the repeat of the show which will be 8 p.m this evening if you've missed any of those conversations or you can actually catch the conversation on a podcast which will be released um later on now from business to theater i'm joined by no other than another remarkable guest who've had the absolute pleasure of um joining me earlier or well in in the past he is a palestinian director a playwright and a dabuke expert he's written and directed several productions he's the co-founder and artistic director of al zatuna dance troupe where he's um, where he danced in most of the productions with European tours. Ahmed has taken the Al Zatuna in tours across Europe. He has uh, written um, many plays um, throughout UK and Europe and he's also now in a He's working on a production which is showcasing at the end of the week, which I'm super excited to kind of share with you. It's called I Have Two Names. Now, um, it's about a young man who's lived um, happily in London for over 10 years. And then he, him, uh, he suddenly his friends start to take an interest in his homeland, Palestine. And his seemingly easy life in the UK is altered. Now, um, it's an absolute pleasure to have Ahmed Najjar on the line this morning. Assalamu alaikum, Ahmed. How are you this morning? I'm all right. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. Firstly, congratulations on um, this new piece that you're showcasing at the end of the week what has the experience been like putting the play together thank you uh thanks very much thanks for having me uh um, today um yeah it's been uh, it's been a great experience uh, but also mixed with some uh, sort of uh, being nervous a little bit because uh, the play is taking place on um the 21st on Thursday and the 22nd on Friday at the Cockpit Theatre. So we're getting closer um, and, uh, yeah, um, bit, a bit nervous but really excited uh, that we're going to have it. And um, um, and the cast are all very, very excited. The team all uh, very um, excited that we're going to have it. Um, so yeah, we 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 looking forward to it. Now you have had quite a prominent role in the UK in encouraging and engaging um, audiences to learn and understand about mm-hmm. Palestinian culture, especially um, as you've been the creator of the week-long festival in 2018 um, at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and Rada Theatre. Um, so. You know, why is it important for you, um, Ahmed, to use your your passion for dance and theatre and culture, especially your Palestinian background, to kind of engage and educate audiences in the UK? I think it's uh, it's important that that we uh, give the, um, the 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 UK population, if you like, an, an alternative access to to, uh, to Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and in general to the Middle East and uh, uh, and to the Muslim world as well. So we we just see and notice that the mainstream media is not really all very uh, positive about the the uh, uh, that part of the world, mm-hmm. and uh, and we we want to um, from our point of view we want to um, show the real uh, Palestine and we want to share this great culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, many great stories and great inspirations that, that come from Palestine mm-hmm. with the um, with the population of the UK, basically. So um, that's why it's really important to me is to bring uh, the positivity mm-hmm. from that region to bring also uh, the real uh, Palestine um, um, to, to the UK. Now, your dance company or the the, the Al Zatuna Dance Theatre company is an yeah. is an artful mix of dabika contemporary dance and yeah. theater performed to uh, which you're so passionate about showcasing tell us a little bit about dabika what is that have i pronounced that correctly and how does that link to the pakistan uh, palestinian culture i was about to say pakistani culture then i meant palestinian culture <laughs> sorry yeah that was fine yeah well, there's a lot of similarities between the pakistani and <laughs> Palestinian culture, so that's all right. Um, I think it, it, Bethka is it's a very uh, traditional uh, Palestinian dance, but also it is not just Palestinian, you know, it's, it comes from the, the Middle East. And mm-hmm. uh, if we want to be more uh, precise, it comes from the Mediterranean countries. So mm-hmm. inside, you see a similar form of, of Bethka in Turkey and Greece. Uh, and uh, uh, some other uh, uh, Mediterranean countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might call it differently, but the form of it is very, very similar, which is something. Uh, and so that's, that's this uh, so style of dance has existed for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but it kind of evolved, uh, and particularly for the Palestinians, it has evolved uh, quite dramatically in a way because the Palestinians have use this dance is to emphasize their identity mm. and to um, their identity and culture because their dance is part of their culture and their identity. So it's been used to um, to express uh, a, to express resistance and uh, protest and identity. Although the the uh, original form of it is to 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 dance uh, for happy occasions. Mm-hmm. But in Palestine, it's, it's evolved into many different, uh, uh, many different fronts, really. So, so you see the Palestinians that they're protesting, they they dance this particular dance as they expressing uh, feelings, identities, um, belonging mm-hmm. by using this dance. So it's become an extremely important uh, part of of the Palestinian struggle. Um, so that's the form of it, uh, and it's, it's, I mean, you know, I'm, I know I'm biased, but it's, it's a very beautiful dance. It's a very, so, uh, it gets everybody up to dance and participate. So mm-hmm. It gets people to to join. And, there's and an there's there is an element of empowerment, and it's quite powerful. You talked about resistance and coming together 
and um, solidarity in in the movements. And it's quite significant, I believe, uh, in in your play as well. And the play that we're talking about is um, I Have Two Names. Folks, if you've just tuned in, it's 11.38 and uh, you're listening to Shemiza, that's me, on the Urban Cube show. And I'm joined by Palestinian director, playwright and Dabaka expert Ahmed Najjar. Um, now, Ahmed is talking to me about a fabulous play that he's written called I Have Two Names, which is going to be premiered very, very shortly. Now, this play to look explores the um, identity of a young man. Ahmed, tell us a little bit more about what we can expect in this play. Um, I have two names. And does will it include um, Dabika? Uh, yeah, I have two names. Um, you definitely would expect uh, some dancing and uh, uh, that can mix with uh, contemporary dance. So the base of, of the dance that you will see uh, will be that clip, but with, uh, with some mixed with some contemporary dance. And you will see uh, also a lot of acting. Uh, so it's got a lot of text as well. Um, and so you would, uh, it, it is it's a play that emotionally charged uh, with, with, uh, with a lot of different emotions, really. And it talks about... Um, a young Palestinian uh, man who uh, lived almost half of his life in the UK, and he uh, he's well integrated, and um, but he finds it very difficult. He has this sort of nagging feeling that he wants to go back home to Palestine to visit, um, but because he is Palestinian, can't go to Palestine. And so we're highlighting the irony of it. And also, we're talking about. Uh, uh, you see that this is struggle of uh, integration, mm. uh, which is highlighting the the issue whether we whether we uh, would be able to integrate better with uh, within our surroundings mm. if we are in touch with our roots, mm. or if we are not in touch with our roots. So, which one is really which one is really better for integrating? If you're still uh, in touch with your roots, would you be able to integrate that out in your surroundings, or would it be more difficult for you? It's quite, um, it's a poignant question, uh, which many of us with dual nationalities or you know our heritage comes from, um, say South East Asia or out sure. of the UK. We're always questioning: Will we ever find the answers? <laughs> um, I think this is a very good question. Um, I. Uh, I think if you want to see what the answer is, uh, you'll have to come to the play. Ah, I like that. And that play <laughs> is called I Have Two Names. Tell us a little bit more, Ahmed. This play that you've written, um, where yep. or where can people see it? When will it be on? The timing and um, how long is it on for? Uh, it's going to be for two nights uh, at the Cockpit Theatre, uh, which is in London. And it will be on the... 21st and the 22nd of November, so this Thursday and Friday, and it will start at 7:30. Inshallah. Um, so and yeah, make sure to uh, to come. Yeah. And how can people access tickets if they want to go? Uh, just go to the Cockpit Theatre website, um, and it's there and uh, on their uh, on their website you can access mm -hmm. um, the website and get a ticket from there. We also have a. a um, 
a page that called Azeituna Dance Theatre um, that you can see the details there uh, if, if you search for it. It's Azeituna, uh, which means in uh, in English an olive. Azeituna means an olive. So uh, if you forget, <laughs> just remember an olive and see what it means in Arabic. Ah, and I like the fact that you mentioned olive, a very significant uh, symbolism for Palestine. And Al-Zatuna, is, does um, Al-Zatuna mean olive? What does it mean? Yes, Al-Zatuna means, it means an olive, yeah. Ah, see, I learned something today. Yeah. Now, um, something <laughs> that I recall um, speaking to mm-hmm. Alia Al-Zubi um, about, and yes. also it was the play The Shroud. Um, which was part yes. of the Palestinian, um, I think, was it the Arts and Literature Festival? There was a festival a couple of years ago. And um, yes. I, I, now I can't recall whether I spoke to yourself or whether I spoke to Ahmed Massoud about the the play, The Shroud. I think it, it must have been Ahmed Massoud. Ahmed Massoud. He the, um, yeah, he's the, um, the writer of... And director of that play, The Shroud Maker. And The Shroud Maker was so poignant. Um, and this play was just yeah. was about, I believe, um, an elderly lady who had the most yes. um, successful business in Palestine, and that was shroud yes. making, and that yes. was gra- guaranteed work. Um, and the story yes. around yeah. her shroud making was so poignant oh my goodness and um, yeah it was um, a very very powerful play very powerful play and yeah definitely this play really did resonate quite deep the significance the new nuances um the fact it was very clever very clever but very raw and very real the fact that the only thing we can guarantee is death um, and the fact that this uh, yeah. wonderful woman w- went through many generations of her life um, ob- seeing the increasing numbers of deaths of the young and old um, and the Absolutely, fact that she yeah. was creating the shrouds for them. It it, it was extraordinary, extraordinary. Um, yeah. And what was quite extraordinary was the actual, the way the stage was set and, and you know, the material used um, on this, in this play. Um, I wanted to, uh, and, uh, do you know what, it's gone off from the top of my head and the lady that's actually created those shrouds is another significant creative in London um, and her work is remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, you, do, you, can, can, do you remember the name? Sorry, I've just completely gone off tangent now. The lady that actually created the shrouds themselves in the play. Okay. Oh, I'm not sure. I okay. think her name be Dina or Dima. I'm not, yes, not, uh, yes, I'm it sure. is. Yes, it is. You're correct. Um, yes. And yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you the actual setting yes. of the stage, the actual the layout of the stage. Um, are there any, is there any significant symbolism? How have you done that? How what can we expect as an audience? Um, in the in the the stage uh, actually the stage is set is very simple because it. The play is almost is, is actually based in London. So, um, it, as, as I mentioned before, it's talking about uh, uh, some somebody who lives in London, um, and it, it and it's it's going to be a, a cafe scene. Uh, so this is this is the setting of the uh, stage, uh, pretty much. Um, but the significance uh, to this uh, play for me is is really is about also uh, not just about Palestine, it's about the fact that a lot of young um, 
Muslim people come to Europe to get the, uh, the the European passport and so that they can go back to their own homeland and, mm. and so that they can travel freely with this and and and, and that that's the point that we are also trying to make this person uh, silent his, his name in play that's coming to Europe to get, to get the European passport so that he can live in the Middle East mm. or in the Arab countries uh, or travel across the Muslim world because uh, it's all these issues around uh, traveling and around moving. Mm. Um, yeah, so it, it is it is in a way that we um, we see this a lot uh, a daily basis that people come here mm. um, for this purpose, um, and then once they the real reason actually they don't want to leave their own countries is is always some reason that pushes yes. them out in and. Uh, we're looking into uh, they are looking into solutions how mm. they can still be in touch with their roots and culture but yet have the freedom of moving and traveling um, and and I think it, it will, lately I've been noticing and seeing a lot of young artists uh, focusing on, on on these sort of issues and we see their revolutions in, in the, in mm. the Middle East and mm. the rejection of all uh, this uh, Sort of imposing uh, governments and and regimes and imposing on, on people, and they're trying to liberate sort of themselves and try to um, be be something else and look for uh, after run after their dreams and uh, sort of look for a better life. And so that's an attempt, really, to um, to 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 highlight this issue. And for the Palestinians in particular, it's, it's a very different one because uh, um, the irony of, uh, uh, is that if you, if you are a Palestinian and you were born in Palestine and you have family in Palestine, then, then you won't be able to go to Palestine mm-hmm. because Israel is not allowing you to come back uh, in spite of all of, of the fact that you are Palestinian. And, and the, 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 the story in the play, you see that Salim, the Palestinian guy, lives in London, and then he has um, European friends, and they are really, they take an interest in Palestine, they start sort of wanting to travel to Palestine, he encourages them, but also uh, dig deep, he is quite uh, uh, sort of um, disturbed about the fact that they can go, but he can't, so it goes into also psychological impact mm-hmm. uh, of someone that is that he believes that he should be, he should have the right to go mm. to his homeland, but yet he can't. Others, others can. Others that people who, who matter to him and people who are uh, close friends to him, they can. So he's faced with that bittersweet feeling mm. about it, with that to sort of encourage him to go and be proud of his heritage. Does this or play? Like, you know, I can't go. Why mm. could you go? So yes, sorry, I have two names and you've written this play. Does it have any links to your own life? Are we seeing the character reflecting it, it, your experiences? Yeah, it's very, very interesting that uh, a lot of people are surprised. Mm. It does. Uh, but, but like I always uh, say that uh, the story in here is not really unique to me as such people. Mm. Because it is the case for all Palestinians. Mm. Mm. Um, so the story that of the fact that even 
even Palestinians with European passports they're still being treated differently when they go when they right. go back to Palestine. They're still being treated. Uh, they still can't like get in. Um, and there's still, for example, the British government wouldn't intervene into into facilitating uh, their access there. So it's a whole complex uh, uh, issue, and, and and it's very distressing for the Palestinians, in particular that they are in in the diaspora and the exile. They find it very kind of distressing that everybody, you know, anyone can just jump into Egypt and go to Tel Aviv and then mm-hmm. from Tel Aviv goes into Jerusalem and uh, into uh, the, um, all the Palestinian territories from there. Whereas then the Palestinians themselves can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not allowed to travel to Tel Aviv. They're not even allowed to travel to their own um, home and their own territory. So, uh, and that makes it this is sort of, a lot of people don't know this. A lot of people find thought it, so it, it's okay for us to go back and travel freely, but the reality is completely different from that. And, and my aim is to highlight this issue mm-hmm. um, and to highlight the fact that occupation is not just a political issue. It is a personal. It is personal. It affects people's personal lives. It, it makes different. Life, their life can be very different, uh, and that's why, in the play, it was for Salem. It was a, it was uh, the Palestinian guy. It was a matter of uh, make it or break it for his relationship with mm-hmm. uh, some uh, an English woman. He he was he was he had a relationship with her, and and that was Palestine comes in the middle, in a way that she she's going and he wants to help him to go, but. She can't do it because of the Israelis not letting him in, and she doesn't want to associate herself with him because if she does, they will not let her in. And so that creates a whole dilemma, a mm. whole conflict, um, and it makes it very kind of uh, it, it, it makes it like almost like a dilemma that that one has to sort of give up their rights, mm. either him or his uh, or his friend or his girlfriend to give up the right of going there or him to give us his right of going there. So this um, this play is yeah. a very interesting journey and it is a reflection of the reality of the situation of many Palestinians, as you've rightly said. Now, um, do you think theatre is the best means or art is the best means of educating um, or audiences or people who are unaware more than demonstrating um, in the streets, like in peaceful po- protests? What's more successful, do you think? I, I think uh, every, every sort of means has its its way of, uh, of reaching out to people. Um, art is very powerful, for no doubt. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in art. I, I think through art you can reach uh, people's heart and mind. Um, and uh, art... Is, is not just informing you, is, uh, is capturing your your attention and your imagination as well. And I always find that through art, uh, is, is a, it kind of sort of encourages you to mm. go and find out more. Because, mm. you know, um, through this play, I can't tell you all about Palestine or what's happening in mm. the Middle East and, and all that, or what's the struggle for, for people who uh, who are from that part of the world living in the UK. But, but that sort of a gate for you to go um, and open it and, and so learn about it and, and 
art can be um, provocative. So it can provoke your thoughts. It can be uh, encourage you to go and find more and question, question things. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, could also the demonstrations uh, could have their own impact. Mm. Uh, um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm an artist, so probably be a biased. And may your art continue. And I'm really excited to have had uh, to announce that you are showcasing I Have Two Names, uh, um, which is at the Cockpit Theatre. And um, but at the end of the week, thank you so very much, Ahmed, for joining us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know you have a very, very busy schedule and you've taken time out to speak to us on the Urban Cube. And um, good luck with the uh, play, which is showcasing Thursday and Friday of this week at the Cockpit Theatre. And it's called I Have Two Names. So thank you. Thank you so very much, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Ahmed Najjar, who is the writer of I Have Two Names, which will be showcasing at the Cockpit Theatre on uh, the end of the week, Thursday and Friday at Gate Gate 4th Street, London. Folks, thank you for tuning in. Repeat is 8pm. And from me, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at InspireFM Luton.